listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. We're in Matthew chapter 7. We turn the, the chapter over from chapter 6. We're in the last chapter of the Sermon of the Mount, this message series that we started back last summer, and we've slowly been working through it, and now we are in the last chapter. We're in the home stretch. And as we come to chapter 7, and in chapter 7, verse 1, we probably come to one of the most recognizable, most quoted statements that Jesus ever made. In fact, if you were to go out on the street and ask the average person to quote from the Bible, more than likely this would be in the top three verses that would end up getting quoted. It's found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, and you can see it as you have your Bibles open to that. And the very first words, and, and this is what somebody might tell you, what are some of the most famous words of Jesus? It is, judge not. Or, to take it in, in a little more context, judge not that you be not judged. And people would say and, and see that as a very recognizable verse of the Bible and very recognizable words of Jesus. Now, here's a few screenshots of a, a simple internet search I did this week that, that I typed in the words, don't judge or uh, don't judge me t-shirts. And, and you can see you can buy all kinds of t-shirts. And thank you to Elaine. She uh, apparently blurred out some of the, the, the words that were in there. And, and, and basically, we kind of carry this mantra. Don't judge me. Don't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. And, 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 and yet, we, we think we can go out and we can do whatever we want to do. And, and, and we are free to do whatever it is. And, and you're not the boss of me. Who are you to judge me? We hear that so often. And yet, it's funny, we hear this constantly, and yet, in kind of tongue-in-cheek kind of way, our world is just full of critics. We have critics like crazy. It seems you can't do anything, go anywhere, or, or say anything at times without being critiqued or, or, or criticized or, or judged by other people. And, and, and face it, you know, our culture is just full of all kinds of critics. You have music critics. You have critics in literature, in film, in theater, political critics, environmental critics, all of these. I mean, this is just kind of the starting point of all the different critics that we have out there. We have probably some of the most recognizable critics from a TV show that was on a number of years ago, and some of you would, would probably recognize them, but they're maybe not by name. Their names are Statler and Waldorf, and, and, and from the, the show Muppet Show, how many of you remember them? And, and great show, and uh, you know, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube, uh, YouTube somewhere, and uh, it's kind of funny that here at, at, at our church here in Kelowna, we also have our own version of Statler and Waldorf. If you don't know who they are, just take a look. Yeah, isn't that great? <laughs> isn't that amazing? I mean, Statler and Waldorf are just the best, and Fred and George are a close second, aren't they? I mean, it is just so uh, uncanny. And I did get permission uh, from their wives to show that picture of them together with um, Statler and Waldorf. And, and, and so we have critics like that that we can laugh at and, and we can poke some fun at and different things. But let's face it, we're, we're in a very... Uh, strong world where we are told, don't judge me, and yet we criticize and we judge like crazy. 
And uh, just even for, for pastors and, and churches, I mean, th- this can easily happen. Richard DeHaan, um, who was part of Day of Discovery, he, in, in a book that he wrote, he, he wrote some criticisms that pastors can sometimes face, and they're kind of tongue-in-cheek, and yet there's aspects of this that can be very true. And, and he says, uh, says this, if a pastor is too young, he lacks experience. If, he, if his hair is gray, he's too old for the young people. If he has five to six children, he's irresponsible. If he doesn't have any, he's setting a bad example. If he uses a lot of illustration, illustrations in his sermons, he's neglecting the Bible. And if he doesn't use enough illustrations, he's not relevant. If he drives an old car, he's shaming the congregation. Uh, but if he drives a new one, he's setting his affection on earthly things. And it kind of goes on with these kind of expectations and, and, and criticisms that we can sometimes have. I heard of a poor bachelor guy who every time he would bring a prospective girl home to meet his family, it never went well. And he was so frustrated, he was getting older because his mother was always so critical of every girl that he brought home. Just couldn't even stand them. He'd just pick them apart like crazy. And, and so he was kind of just concerned and didn't know what to do. So one of his friends ended up telling him, why don't you go and see if you can look for and find a girl that is just like your mother? And maybe she will like that person that you bring home. And he thought, hey, that's a good idea. And he looked and he looked and he ended up finding this young lady that talked like his mother, that acted, had the same hair color. I mean, she was like almost a clone except younger to his mother, and just thought, this is going to be amazing, and so he took her home. Next time the bachelor's friend saw him, he said, hey, how are things going? Did you find, he says, yeah, I found, I found the perfect girl. She's just like my mother, and what did your mother have to say? She loved her. It was amazing. They just got along so well. It was just so wonderful, but my dad couldn't stand her, you know, <laughs> and you just kind of think, ah, Few things in life are more exhausting and more debilitating than harsh, unloving, critical judgment and a judgmental, critical spirit. Sadly, even within the church, this can be so true, and maybe profoundly, sadly, in the church, this can be so true. There are some who believe that perhaps it is their spiritual gift to criticize, to just be a critic. Early in my ministry years, I had an elder on an elder's board, and, and, and I remember him writing in a Christmas card to, to Charlotte and I, and, and he wrote some nice things, and he says, you just need to know that I know I trouble you, I'm always critiquing, I'm always, you know, just always opposing everything you're talking about, but I just want to be able to keep you sharp. And after a little while, that just got very tiring and very, very difficult. And sadly, some people think that that is their gift. Sadly, Christians or church people, we can be labeled, we can be known for, and because it can also be very true, we can be known for being judgmental, critical, hypocritical, and negative, always finding a problem with everything. Nothing meets our standard. And yet the very first words that Jesus gives here in chapter 7 to start this section here in the Sermon on the Mount is judge not. Seems like a pretty clear command from Jesus. Are we going to obey what he has to say? What does he mean by this exactly? 
You see, so oftentimes when God begins a work in the life of a person, of a new believer, or in a church, in a new church, or in a ministry, or whatever it might be, there is a lot of excitement, and there's a lot of love, and there's a lot of grace, and and a desire to obey God's word, and to live on mission for God, and to pursue holiness in, 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 in our lives, and And over time, what can end up happening to an individual or to a group of people or even in a church or even a denomination even larger than that is that people can kind of spin off into hypocrisy and sinful judgment rather than staying focused on the mission. As culture and everything starts to change a little bit and not necessarily wanting to change with the culture, that that at times there can be some of those cultural judgments and criticisms that take place. And there's something that the flesh fights against us in this area. The flesh wants us to not be satisfied, to to find fault in others, to compare ourselves or, or remember back to the good old days and say those were the good old days when our Lord is saying, hey, these are going to be some new good old days of what I'm desiring to do in your life and in your ministry or in your church body. We look at someone who might be smarter than us, more beautiful, more gifted, more successful, and we look at them oftentimes with a critical eye, don't we? And we look and we find fault and we can pick things out so easily in other people. And sometimes we'll keep it to ourselves and it's just passing in our mind or else we find a like-minded soul to be able to share this with. Whether it's kept in our mind or whether we share it with others, Jesus tells us here to judge not. Last week we talked about fear. Spent time at our prayer night taking those fears seriously and again confessing and repenting and spending time together in the word of God at our prayer night. And just as fear can grip and control a person and your life and, 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 and your sleep and your daily function can be affected by fear like an Okanagan wildfire on the side of a mountain in the middle of August that, that burns with a great wind in the way that that can be so destructive of fear in our life, criticism, judgmentalism can do the same in a person's life. We can become so negative And see everything with that critical eye. We may say it's the gift of discernment, but if truth be known, there's a lot of judgmentalism that goes on. And that getting into a pattern like this leaves you critical and and empty and kind of almost dirty at times because you're just always on the negative side of things. And and it saps your one's spiritual joy. It it hinders our relationship with, with, with Christ because of this negative in our lives. And so in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is warning his disciples about sinful judgmentalism. He's warning about having a critical fault-finding spirit. And in particular, who he's referring to and what he's talking to are the scribes, the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law who followed him around, who no doubt were listening to what Jesus had to say. But in many ways, he was addressing these Pharisees and, 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 and the others that were associated with them. But you see, the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are oftentimes labeled as the bad guys in the New Testament. And indeed, I mean, they were, they're always opposing Jesus. After all, 
They were even instrumental in coordinating his death, his betrayal and his death. But you know what? The Pharisees, they weren't always the bad guys. They weren't. You see, in the 400 years between the Testaments, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a space of 400 years. The Jewish people, God's chosen children, God's chosen race, the Jewish people, had fallen into into great wickedness and sin. And they had become just as wicked as the nations all around them, taking their gods, taking their practices, and and, and just including it in part of their lives, and in so many ways, and ultimately, so many just rejected God and the teaching of God's word. And the Pharisees were a group of people that, that weren't ready to settle for compromise. They weren't ready to settle to be lukewarm. They wanted to live all out for God. And so they were some of the original, if you want to call it, back to the Bible kind of people. They were taking God's word seriously. And and so they became known and identified as the Pharisees. And it wasn't a bad word. It, It wasn't a negative group that started out. They were desiring to live lives separated from sin and living all out for God. That is something that we ought to do. But over time, what started to happen is they became very closed and they became very self-righteous and they started to look down at others instead of with a heart of love, with a heart of judgment. Rather than having a loving concern, they developed a disdain for others and saw others very secondary to themselves. And by the time of Jesus... Their desire to be separated from the sin also meant that their separation was basically from anyone else who was not one of them. Whoever wasn't a part of their elite group, not only do you criticize them, you have nothing to do with them. You know what was true of the Pharisees then can so easily happen today and we have to guard against this. Whereas Christians or, or the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, we can be so quick to cannibalize one another. And I can be the chief in that area. I really can. With negativism, criticism, fault finding, and judgment. And Jesus, he's so concerned here, he's going to address this in this verse, but in the verses that follow. And he's so concerned that his disciples, and he's so concerned that you and I could easily become like these Pharisees. And he doesn't want that. He doesn't want that to happen to his followers. He doesn't want that to happen to you and to me. And so this is why he writes this, or spoke this here on the side of the mountain there, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Let's read these verses. You can follow along in Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you seek, or why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eyes, and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, where there is a log in your eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, And then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Don't give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs. Lest they trample them underfoot and attack and turn to attack you. 
So does this mean that we're not to say anything to anyone? We just live, allow people to live and just kind of let them live and do their own thing. We just bite our tongue. We don't warn. We don't confront. We don't deal with sin. It's not what Jesus is saying here at all, and that doesn't go with the rest of Scripture. You see, God's Word says, and we'll look at this in a few moments, that we are to confront. We are to talk about sin with others. We are to point that out in the lives of others. We are to discern, we are to observe, we are to inspect, and we to see other things that are going on in the lives of people or within the church of Jesus Christ. We are to, to, to make decisions and, 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 and examine whether it's a false or a dangerous teaching that is being uh, taught in the life of a church. Or, and, and, and we'll address that in a few more moments and, and, and just the importance of discernment in those areas. And yet, all of this comes down to, it's about our heart and how we approach one another in this. I like what John Stott wrote. This is a great quote. He says, truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love. And love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by truth. It's good, isn't it? Oh, we need a balance of truth and love. And so Jesus gives us these instructions here in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 about how we are to speak, how we are to relate to those around us, how we are to balance this truth and love, whether that be within the church with brothers and sisters in Christ, whether that be with those in our family, other Christians, or those even outside of the church. What are we to say? What are we to do? How are we going to be winsome towards these people and not turn them off? How are we going to be firm and not compromise in the truth of God's word while not swinging sharp daggers that cut and hurt other people. And so here in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus, here we see three instructions when it comes to speaking the truth in love. And here are some important instructions, some things for us to remember. And the first one is to, in fact, remember. Remember, before I open my mouth, we need to remember some things before I start talking and judging other people. We must remember there is a judge and it is not me. There is a judge, it is not me. Psalm 7 verse 11, it says, God is the righteous judge. The job of judge of the universe has already been taken and it's not me and it's not you. And Jesus is talking about a prideful arrogance here in this passage where one sees themselves as judge, jury, and executioner. Whether it be looking at people from another country, another race, another religion, whether it be someone in a different church or even someone in our own fellowship, we can so oftentimes judge other people and think we know everything that is going on, that has gone on, and we know exactly what they're thinking, and we don't. And you see, in the Bible here, in, in, in this passage, but throughout, we also see that there are really two different forms of judgment that we're talking. There's, there's two different uh, forms, and, and, and we need to look at that and, and distinguish between the two of them. And so the first one is a critical judgment. This is what I've been already describing. This is harsh. This is hypocritical. It's self-righteous, it's proud, it's, it's, it, it's 
It's unkind, and, and, and it's a form of, of judging that is just unloving. I know better. I know the truth here. And what you're doing, what you're thinking, it's wrong. I'm right, you're wrong, end of story, case closed. Next. That kind of an attitude. Years ago in a church where we were pastoring, there was a guy who started coming to church with his wife. His wife was a new Christian, and, and he was kind of taken with, with everything that was going, and she was bringing her kids to church, so he thought he would come along as well and to kind of see what this was all about. But he came very reserved and, 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 and very, um, well, what would I say? He'd sit in the service on a Sunday morning and, and sit with his arms crossed with this kind of smug, kind of arrogant smirk on his face. And every time I looked at him, it was like he was saying to me, or so I was thinking, you don't believe this stuff, do you? This stuff is just... This is ludicrous. And, and there'd be at times when I'd say something, a truth from the word of God, you would hear this kind of snicker come out of him. It drove me crazy. And then partways through the service, when it was kind of, it seemed it was coming down to the crunch time, he would get up and walk out. And, and, and we had chairs that weren't, you know, nice and solid like this. And when he'd get up, he would kind of push the chairs in the aisle in front of him and make a bit of a scene. It was a wooden floor. And so you'd hear him walking out. And you'd just see the eyes of everyone just turn and watch him leave. <sighs> Drove us crazy. And at times, talking to him wasn't much better. And, and, uh, and, and we tried. And uh, I remember even one time as Charlotte and I were... We were driving home with our young family from church that morning, and we were, you know, um, rehashing, critiquing, being judgmental about the morning, and especially about him. And I remember a dear, sweet pastor's wife even saying something like this after I had talked about this guy once again and just saying, oh, he just drives me crazy. I don't know why he's doing this. He's so disruptive, and it's just, why does he even come? And, and the dear sweet pastor's wife said, I think I just, someone just needs to put him over their knee and give him a good spanking kind of thing. You know, you could tell we were dealing with young children at the time and that was a very relevant thing to, to think that we should do. I mean, drove us nuts. And in the time that we remained at the church, there seemed to be a bit of a softening, but I mean, it still was pretty much, it would go like that week after week. After we moved away, it was about a year or so later, I heard that a great change was continuing to happen in his life. And I heard that he made a commitment to Jesus Christ. And as I heard that, I started to message him on Facebook and find out a little bit more about what was going on. Here's, went back to that message this past week, and here's what he wrote. I did have hesitations back then about the word of God, but not anymore. I never realized that you noticed when I'd get up in the middle of the service and go and have a long coffee break. But you need to know, I was always listening at the door. I'm sorry. You see, I never really felt worthy to be there. And then he wrote, hey, and a little FYI, I'm planning on getting baptized next month. I thought I had him all figured out. I thought he was just sitting there with a smirk and being judgmental, and I, judge, jury, executioner, right, wrote the guy off, 
And here he'd get up and leave because he just didn't feel worthy. We can be so wrong. I am not the judge. You are not the judge. That job has already been taken. And it is by someone who knows and understands each person individually. And so when Jesus is saying, don't judge, he's referring to this kind of critical and harsh, fault-finding, condemning spirit that can be prevalent in our hearts and in our lives. But then there's also a second kind of judgment, this different than the critical judgment. There's a discerning judgment. This is distinguishing truth from error and leads to a life of freedom and, and, and joy in Christ. And you see, some believe that that model Christians are, in order to be a Christian and, you know, a good Christian anyways, that you should be totally accepting just whatever someone wants to do, whatever their lifestyle, just don't say anything, just love them. Love the sinner, hate the sin, don't say anything, don't, don't confront, just love them. I love another thing that John Stott said is, is, is love is soft, um, Love is, or just back to that reference that he made that about our love being strengthened by truth and how important that is. But you see, to not use discerning judgment would violate Jesus' own words. We are to be discerning people. And that discerning, discernment will lead to at times making judgment about what is right and what is wrong, what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. And, if, and, and, and that just continues to go in line even in this passage of Scripture, down into verse 6. We'll see that in a few moments. And here's some other references that we see where we are to learn to discern. In, in, in chapter 7, verse 6, it, just a few verses down, it, it says that we are to be wise. And I think we have some verses here that can go along with this that encourage you to write them down. Uh, we are to be wise and discerning when it comes to difficult people. We are to distinguish and, and, and tell the difference between people who are wanting to hear the gospel and those who are dogs, as it refers to, or pigs. And, and that sounds really bad, but we'll cover that in a few moments. But even a little further down in this chapter, Jesus warns us to be watchful and careful for false teachers and prophets that are out there and, and trying to lead people astray. And he says, you need to be discerning. You need to make a judgment here, a discriminating judgment here when it comes to the fruit of these people's lives and the message that they are preaching. In 1 John chapter 4, we are told to test the spirits. I'd encourage you to look up these verses, these references this week, because it will just give greater clarity to what we're talking about and how we are to be wise. 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, but we are to examine everything carefully and closely. Be like the Bereans that we see in the book of Acts who studied the word of God. Study what God's word has to say, not just a person's opinion. And that includes... For me as well, that you're stu- that's why I'm telling you, look up these verses, study them. Just don't take my word, take God's word. It's a lot more inerrant than mine. Galatians chapter 1, there's, there's some other verses there where Paul warns about following a false gospel. We are told to test everything to see if it lines up with the word of God. 
If it meets the standard of what God's word is talking about. And today, this is so vital, folks, in the church of Jesus Christ. We need to test. We need to examine. We need to be discerning when it comes to the teaching that we're hearing. Or the teaching that we're podcasting. Or the books that we're reading. Or, 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 or whoever it is. Even at times the music that we can be listening to. We've got to learn to discern. And, and biblical discernment these days it's at an all-time low in our churches. And it's so easy for people just to assume and to think that if it happened in a church, it must be okay. If it came out of the words or the lips out of the, from a pastor that it's taken as gospel truth, we must examine everything with the word of God. We are to judge the teaching and doctrines that we're hearing. We are to look at, at teachers and determine if they are false teachers even at times the reports of miracles or revivals, are these from God or is it from the devil? Can go both ways. Stories we hear about angels and demons in the afterlife, books that have been written and, and, and movies that have been produced that, that, that people flock to and think are amazing. Again, does it line up with the truth and the teaching of God's word? We need to learn to discern. We need to examine everything according to the word of God. It is the standard. I am not the standard. Elders in a church are not the standard. It is the word of God. It is our responsibility to discern and to live and to teach the truths from God's word. But God's word is a standard. And the church is being bombarded with a lot of false teaching here in North America. And I don't even think half the time we're even aware of a lot that is going on. And, and, and Chrissy mentioned a little earlier in the month of April, we're going to have a special three-week mini-series that we're hoping people, that, that all of you will be a part of, that you will join in a three-week um, uh, session in, in the month of April. There's more details in the e-news, which she told you to sign up for and also told you to, to read. There's more details there and more details will be developing, but we're going to spend time watching as small groups um, a, a mini-series on the area of teaching us to discern in the area of, of a lot of the teaching that is going on today. And so we're going to be watching this documentary, spending time together talking, at times perhaps even more than likely repenting of areas, but helping to, to discern and to learn what we need to be looking for when it comes to the teachings that are out there uh, on biblical false teaching. And, and, and here's just a little uh, video preview of, of this documentary we're going to be watching. We're going to roll it right now. It is a pain to know that there are people who do not know Jesus. It is a greater pain to know that oftentimes Jesus and Christianity is being distorted. Who told you you can't accomplish your dreams? I had no clue what the gospel was. I never really heard it. You know God wants you healthy. I worked for my uncle Benny Hinn, who's a famous faith healer. As far as I knew, he died and rose again so that I could have a prosperous life. But what was going through my mind at the time was that this was real. Charlatans and snake oil salesmen have been doing this trick for decades. People think basically that religion is there to boost your ego, make you happy, make you more successful, make life go well. Um, and as I got older, I really started to question God and how he could send people to hell. Scripture says that we make the mistake of thinking God was like us. And what you do is you create a God who only wants to give you all the desires of your heart. Your destiny is calling out. It's time to start living large. 
We stayed in hotels upwards of $20,000 a night. Nobody wants to die, nobody wants to be sick, and nobody wants to be poor. All the things that Jesus says we have to be willing to set aside to follow him, they take all of those things and they make that the attraction of the gospel. We are exporting the very worst of what Christianity has to offer. I'm strong, I'm healthy, I'm blessed, I'm favored, I am a victor, not a victim. I'm gonna live a long, productive, faith-filled life. In terms of biblical Christianity, Christianity is about dying. How can I just continue to live my life as if this isn't true? So I abandoned my version of the American dream and I said, I will do what I can to take the gospel to the nations. More details to come in the coming weeks on that. You see, discerning judgment will at times lead us to confront sin, to confront people who are living in areas of sin or living in areas of sin. Matthew 18, here's some more verses. I encourage you to write these down. Matthew 18, verse 15. If we, we are to go to a brother or sister who is in sin. Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. If anyone is caught in transgression, it says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of, of anger. Did I say that right? Those who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Galatians chapter 2, Paul's confronting Peter. It even says, to his face, Peter, the great apostle, the great disciple of Jesus. There's a part where he, in his life he was, he was living in some areas of error, living in, in some areas of, of, that was concerning to the truth and, and to uh, the integrity of one of God's servants. And, 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 and Paul opposes him and, 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 and take, calls him out publicly on this. In 1 Corinthians 5, there are certain situations, extreme measures that are even to be taken in dealing with sin within the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul names two individuals, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who were put out of the church because of their corruptive influence that they had upon it. And there are times that difficult measures ought to be taken and that we need to, to um, confront and to deal with these areas. But there has to be so much discernment in that and gentleness as we're going to continue to see here. Speaking the truth in love requires that I must remember that before I open my mouth that there is a supreme judge of the universe and it is not me. In verse 2 it goes on to say, when Jesus, uh, Jesus goes on to say, For with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. When I judge another person without biblical grounds and I'm not doing and, and for the wrong motivation, to demean them, to put them, put them down, to build myself up, or even to be a person of truth, but we're not doing it in a loving way, so that somehow maybe we elevate ourselves in front of other people or to justify even at times our own sin, those motivations will lay the groundwork, Jesus is saying here, for how God will one day judge us. There will be a rude awakening on the day of judgment when our self-righteousness will be exposed. And if we don't stop, and we must stop it today and start dealing with it so that the day of judgment won't be a day like that. If I am judgmental and unloving, unmerciful in how I see and think and talk about others, I will be judged one day before God in the same measure. I like what J.D. Greer had to say, 
and I quote, he says, when I am talking to someone who is in sin or in error, I should be painfully aware that I'm infected with the same sinful stuff they are. And what judgment was pronounced on me by Jesus? Mercy. That was the judgment pronounced on me. I came to Jesus with my sin and he showed and he continues to show me unlimited grace and mercy, understanding and forgiveness. And in the way that Jesus accepts and receives and grants us mercy and grace, we are to do that to others. We are sinners who have been saved by God's grace, pardoned and forgiven, loved and accepted. Like what, again, John Stott had to say, this is not a command to be blind. What Jesus is saying here in these first two verses, it's not a command to be blind, but it's a command to be generous. To be generous in our love and in our mercy towards others. But then second of all, we see speaking the truth in love requires that I must examine my own life first. Look at in verse 3. To verse 5, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is saying that we're not to not confront sin, but we must do it in a particular order. And Jesus uses this great word picture uh, that would have produced a few chuckles in the crowd. People would have laughed when, when he would have said this because it's just foolishness, I mean, what he's saying. And I, I found a picture on the internet that just, I mean, it, it just helps to describe this. You know, it, isn't that great? How are we going to have this log in our own eye and, and, and yet we're wanting to remove that speck, that sliver in someone else's? And yes, that speck, that sliver that they have in their eye, it's a problem and it must be dealt with. But we must deal with what we have first. And, you know, just even in, in thinking about that, you know, it's just so easy that, you know, I have a toothpick in my hand and, and, and let's say that's a sliver, you know, and, and in comparison to this great big plank that so easily can just go in our eye, you know, like this. And, you know, and so I'm going to go up to, you know, Michael here. Michael, can you just stand up? Sure. You know, and, and so just, just hold this close to your eye, would you? You know, and, uh, you know, don't poke yourself with it. It, it is sharp. So just hold it, you know, and so here I'm going to come, Michael, you know, I, I see you have this, oh, you're really going close there. You know, like, let, let, let me help you with that, you know, and, 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 you know, I'm kind of a problem here. I'm trying to prop up my plank and, you know, if I get in close, it just might hit you or something or, you know, whatever it might be or I bang you on the head. You know, I mean, it's just so foolish. I mean, but this is what we try to do. Thank you so much for, uh, you can keep that toothpick. That's for free. Um, <laughs> We're very generous here. And, uh, and yet so oftentimes, I mean, th this whole plank and toothpick kind of thing, it's so easy to turn the microscope on and examine another person's life and their motives and, and, and to know, you know, like, oh, that wasn't a sincere apology. Oh, I know. I know that wasn't sincere. Again, judge, jury, executioner. We put someone else's sin under the microscope and then we take and look at our own sin with binoculars, but we turn them around, don't we? You ever done that? Whenever you take binoculars, turn around, I mean, it just kind of distanced everything. 
works in an opposite way. So how do we deal with slivers in someone else's eye? Carefully, slowly. One time when I was a kid, we had a babysitter looking after us, and, and I don't know, I guess I had a job of uh, sweeping the floor in the kitchen. We had this old broom, and I was whipping around probably as a dagger or something. I, I don't know what I was doing with it, but it was a real beat-up old uh, broom handle, and, and there was a big chunk of it that came out in my hand, and, and the way I did it, it ended up piercing right in between uh, my thumb and my index finger. And so I had this, this nice little chunk of wood in between here. And did it hurt? And did I scream? And the blood was flowing. And, and, and this babysitter, you know, came. And, and, and what did she do right away? I mean, did she just come and just rip that thing out? No, she, she was smart. She actually looked to see which way it came in so that she could remove it. And, and you know, she didn't even, it was so big, she didn't even need tweezers, you know, to get it out. But, but it hurt, you know. But when you even get a sliver, you just don't take, you know, I asked Charlotte to bring one of these nice little tweezers here. You know, when you get a sliver, you just aren't going to go and start gouging to try to get it. You know, like, I don't know if any of you, oh, I got some flesh there. You know, and, and you don't, you know, no, I mean, first of all, if you're like me, you might have to put on glasses, you know, and, and, and then you, you get in close and, and you go slowly and you do it carefully because you don't want to tear everything apart. Like I did, you see, that's the wrong way to do it, you know, and, and so you learn a lot of things when you come to church. We do it with gentleness. We do it carefully, with patience, with sympathy. And why do we do that? Because we have had a plank removed out of our eye. Why does Jesus use this example? It's because the eye is so precious. And it was sending a message. In order to have a plank removed from our eye, the eye is so delicate in nature. And, and so anything around the eye, you've got to treat it carefully. And so even when it comes to a speck or whether it is a log... We need to deal with it carefully and gently. But Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye first. This is a posture of ongoing. When he's telling us this, in the way that it is written, it's an ongoing kind of thing. We're continuing to examine our own lives. A posture of repentance and humility. Checking ourselves that, that, that there aren't new areas of sin that have developed since the last plank that we ripped out of our eye. Slowly. We're aware of our own sin and our own desperate need for God's mercy and grace. And when we go to a brother or sister with a bandage over our own eye, with a genuine love and concern and say, hey, I've, I've had some planks removed in, out of my eye and look, I still have the bandage from it and I'll help you with, with what you're going through. And, and we confront and we, we help them deal with that sliver. There's a humility about it, saying, hey, I'm in the trenches with you. It's understanding, not ignoring our own sin. It's repenting and removing those, those areas of sin in our lives and asking Jesus to cleanse us. And then finally, speaking the truth in love requires that I remember, that I examine, and that I be prepared, that it may not always go well. Look at it in verse 6. It says, Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Jesus here is reminding his disciples not everyone will be receptive to the teaching of the gospel. Not all, everyone will be open to teaching and correction. That there will be those who will reject the truth of God's word. 
And Jesus even warned throughout the Gospels that his teaching, his life to be his disciples would cause division. It would cause division in families. It would cause divisions in the community, in the workplace. But we are never to force the things of God on other people. We're never to do that. When Jesus uses the word dogs and pigs, you think, oh, what's Jesus doing calling people dogs and pigs? Well, he, he, first of all, just so you know, he's not re- re- referring to that nice little pet that you have at home. He's referring to dogs that would run in packs, scavenge and attack, and if hungry and have the opportunity, would tear you apart. And when he talks about pearls, Jesus is talking about the precious truth of the gospel. And in the same way that you wouldn't take the precious truth of the gospel and just throw it out to anyone who isn't ready to receive it or not wanting to receive it, it would be as foolish as taking precious, priceless pearls and throwing them, trying to put a a pearl necklace on a pig. First of all, it's not going to like it. And when it's rolling around in the mud, it's going to fall off and it's going to get trampled underfoot in the mud. And they will have no appreciation for it. And so Jesus is saying, Be prepared that even as you share the gospel, even as you confront people in love about areas of sin in their lives, that it may not go well. That they may turn back on you and want to tear you from limb to limb. That some won't be receptive to it. And so Jesus is just saying, be careful and be aware. There were times that even for Jesus, he instructed his disciples, but even for him where he turned away from certain people or certain areas because they wouldn't receive the gospel. And so we have to be aware that the precious word of God is that precious pearl. And we don't want to force the precious pearl on people who have no appreciation for it. When someone tells us to leave us alone and stop preaching and they don't want to hear anymore about your Jesus or about the Bible, about your faith, about your church, respect that. Respect that. There were times that many people in here at one time you were hostile towards the things of God. Don't stop praying for them. And we don't stop preaching. We don't stop sharing to other people. But for those people who don't want it, we, we respect what they, their wishes in that way. Always praying that God would do a work. You know, as we end things here this morning, we want to take and, and, and have an opportunity to not just hear the word of God, but to, to live the word of God. And I trust that this week we would be examining our own lives. And even in the next few moments, I'd encourage you as I share a few things and as the band comes that, that um, we would look deeply into our own lives. I wonder this morning, are there people or situations that you would say, hey, I'm guilty of a critical and a negative spirit, that holier-than-thou judgmentalism. You say, yeah, that's a pattern in my life, or this person has experienced this reality over and over again. First of all, that needs to be renounced, repented of it, needs to be given to God, and, and also for you to renounce that you are not God. You don't see the full picture. And thank him. Thank God for his mercy and for his grace. And then take and extend that mercy and that grace to others. Acknowledge those areas in your life. Repent 
confess that before God. Ask him to help you to learn proper discernment, to speak the truth in love. Another thing, pursue reconciliation to those who have been on the receiving end of your critique, not living up to your standard, your negative attitudes. We need to do that. When it comes to those around us who don't know Christ, we, are, we can be so judgmental. I can be. You see people who look differently. Maybe they've chosen lots of piercings or tattoos or certain hairstyles or long beards or dressing different or all the different. I mean, we can just look at people and label and, and think we have them figured out. And, or maybe it's, there's some open lifestyle choices they've made open lifestyle choices that they are living in. Can I give us this instruction? This concern? Seek conversion to Christ first in their lives before persuasion to your point of view. The gospel, it can change people far better than all your words and all your conviction can ever change people. Pray for them. Love them. When given the opportunity, speak the truth in love. Pray that God would get hold of their lives. And rather than fixing our eyes on the faults and the sins and the shortcomings of others, that we would focus on and live in and live out the gospel message. You see, folks, eventually we will become what or who we behold if we're critical and negative and we're living that way, we're going to live a joyless, fruitless, empty, and even lonely life. But the more we behold Jesus, the more we look to him and we say, give me clean hands, give me a pure heart, I don't want to have idols in my life. I don't want to be a judging, controlling, critical kind of a person. I want to have your love, Jesus. A love that, that went to the cross. Thankfully, we don't have to go to the cross for the sins of another, but we need to point them to the cross. We need to point them to Jesus. And we do that by beholding Jesus in our own lives, spending time with him in prayer and in the word and worship. And the more that our lives look like him, the more our countenance, our character, our words, our thoughts, our desires, our lives, our marriages, our relationships, our work, everything we do will reflect the King, will reflect Jesus. May we sing this song as a prayer, as we examine, as we repent, as we worship. May this be a prayer of our hearts. May we leave changed would God do his good work in us?